0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Okay,
2: uh, today is December 1st, uh, 2022. I'm uh, Peter Betke. I am uh, director of the F.A. Hayek program uh, for advanced study in philosophy politics. And economics here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And we are here today to discuss uh, the uh, relatively recent new book by Mark Koyama and Jared Rubin, How the World Became Rich, the Historical Origins of Economic Growth. And We have a stellar panel uh, to discuss that. And um, the way the uh, program is going to go is that Mark and Jared have around 20 minutes to give us an overview of the book. And then we will have our panel uh, talk in 10 to 15 minutes each, uh, discussion of uh, their comments on on the book. And then we'll have a roundtable discussion afterwards. And so um, we are very fortunate today to have uh, Lisa Bladis, who's a professor of political science at Stanford University. She'll be the first uh, commenter. Um, And then after her, uh, Nathan Nunn, who's a professor at, the, at UBC up in Canada, um, and uh, and then after him, uh, Joel Mulcure, who's a professor at Northwestern University. So anyway, thank you very much all for coming. And Jared and Mark, you guys have the floor. Great. So I'm very happy to be here, and I'm honored to be um, you know sharing
3: a, a platform with um, such distinguished commentators, uh, Joel, Nathan, and Lisa. I'm looking forward to their comments. Um, so let me just briefly uh, talk about some of the motivation that Jared and I had when writing Have a World Became Rich and give a brief overview of some of the things I think we, we, we seek out to set out to achieve in, in the book. So we wanted to write uh, a single stop economic history of economic growth so we're we're writing an economic history of the world we begin you know in, in early ancient times in the classical period but we're not writing we're not writing a chronological history um we're not going into a lot of details about every part of the world we're really focusing on the story of economic growth and we're doing so initially thematically so we're considering some of the major kind of um uh, factors which which scholars have suggested as being important. In determining uh, rates of growth. So, things like geography, things like institutions, things like colonialism, culture. And then, once we've done that, once we've kind of set out these important themes, we go into a bit more of a narrative about why a particular episode of economic growth, which began in Northwest Europe, um, you know, really in the period after 1500, that event came to fruition. With a British Industrial Revolution beginning in the 18th century, and then how once industrialization got started, this process spread um, to other, other parts of the world. And so it's a concise book; it's short, but we think it hits uh, those important uh, major themes. Uh, now, I'll just draw attention to one or two things which I think you know might be relevant for our conversation today. And so one is um, that we we very much set out why growth matters. So we're, 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 we kind of um, are quite strong on this point that economic growth has been incredibly beneficial for humanity, both in allowing far more people to live on the planet than would have always be possible and allowing the vast majority of them to enjoy far higher living standards than were possible in the past. Um, so growth is good and growth, enables us to consume more, to live longer lives, to live healthier lives, to live lives with more meaning. And there's no necessary trade-off between economic growth and other factors we might care about. So in some sense, um, from a long-run perspective at least, things like um, climate change are going to be, even though there's a short-run trade-off between uh, economic um, production that causes pollution, that contributes to man-made climate change. In the long run, we think that um, innovation and growth are going to bring technologies and other abilities to ameliorate or potentially deal with with such which, with such uh, grave uh, challenges. And so, growth is 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 vital. And understanding growth requires a historical perspective, and and that's what we're offering here. So there are many great books um, in development economics or on, on the topic of economic growth, but most of them um, focus on focus on the modern period, or, the, or if they do take a historical view, they often take a, a, a they often focus on one aspect. So, uh, why nations fail by Samuel Robinson focuses on institutions, and we wanted to be a little bit more um, broad-minded and um, uh, widen the scope to consider all the factors which contributed to the growth process, without necessarily, at least initially, taking a strong stance on one particular driver uh, of economic growth. So another thing we should um, draw attention to is that we're very much aware that there were episodes of growth historically in the past. So the British Industrial Revolution is not the only episode of economic growth to have have happened before the modern modern era. There were other periods of prosperity, uh, for example, in the ancient world during the commercial revolution in Europe, in the Middle East during the Golden Age of Islam, in Song Dynasty China, and other periods as well. But those periods of growth came to an end. They, they were not self-sustaining. So our interest, particularly as we go on in the book, is what factors made economic growth in, um, in Western Europe after 1500 self-sustaining. And there, when you think about the different factors we've outlined, so we think about geography, we think about institutions, we think about culture. And we try and bring those factors together to try and tell a coherent story about why this particular growth episode um, didn't peter out. So, in particular, we focus on innovation. So, um, many scholars, um, including, of course, uh, Joel, have emphasised the importance of innovation. Is, is innovation is the, the the real factor driving economic growth? Had innov- had rates of innovation of um slowed down after 1750 or after 1800 you might have had uh, a one-off improvement in living standards but not a breakthrough to sustain economic growth so innovation is the driver of long-run long growth and so w- w- we're interested in this question why was western europe particularly innovative after 1500 um, um and their cultural factors are very important but and they, and they complement uh, institutional factors so this is a uh, this is about how the world um becomes less negative sum and becomes more positive sum, um, and and there we think institutions, culture, these things are working together in particular ways, which um, generate uh, uh, this unique in, in, unique outcome in the case of uh, Europe after 1500 and after 1750, uh, and then we we then move on to this discussion of the spread of growth. So how did growth uh, diffuse across? Um, The rest of the world here um several factors are are pretty important one is colonial rule so the 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 fact of european empire after 1500 we don't think of ourselves at least and again we don't take a super strong stance on this but we don't think it's one of the most important drivers of the initial breakthrough but we do think it matters a lot for the diffusion of growth thereafter so some parts of the world were able to um to industrialize much quicker following the industrial revolution, those are parts of the world like North America, which had um, kind of institutions inherited by the British, uh, which were kind of suitable for growth and made other preconditions, geographical preconditions, uh, high levels of human capital, which made the industrial revolution possible early on in North America. Similarly, you have a diffusion of growth to Western Europe. And then it's harder for growth to spread for other parts of the world. So. The period after 1800 is is this great enrichment as um Didier McCloskey calls it, but it also sees a great divergence because other parts of the world don't see this acceleration and growth that that we see in Western Europe and its its kind of offshoots. And so then the second part of the final part of the book, we, we talk about why this is and then why in the 20th century you've seen convergence. So you see initially divergence with the Industrial Revolution and then convergence more recently. And the convergence has been driven uh, uh, in a large part by economic growth in East Asia, particularly after World War II, then, and then more recently in other parts of the world, such as sub-Saharan Africa. And that convergence follows, we think, you know, again, following the work of other scholars, particularly Alexander Gershwin, the convergence story follow is different to the initial growth story. So the institutions which enabled, say, Japan or later South Korea, and um, Taiwan and Singapore to experience such rapid growth in the 20th century didn't have to be the same as the types of preconditions you needed in in England in 1800. And ditto again for China, which is, of course, was the fastest growing economy in the late 20th century and early 21st century. Then very different institutions, very different um, configurations of power were necessary because China was so far from the frontier, it was experiencing uh, catch-up growth. And that catch-up growth didn't require the same support for, say, property rights or um, or um, maybe intellectual property rights, um, though that's debatable, as, as we think were required in the earlier uh, growth episodes. And so um, to summarize and, 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 and to conclude, um, we think the book is offering kind of a unique, concise, historical take on a process of economic growth. So one which is relevant, both for people interested in economic history, both historians who maybe don't know that much about the economic side of things, as well as economists who maybe don't know as much about the historical side of things. So hopefully it can inform uh, debates in development economics and as well as debates in in economic history. And I look forward to the the comments from uh, Lisa, uh, Nathan, and Joel.
4: Well, thank you all um, for... uh... being here uh lisa joel nathan pete um yeah this is a really an amazing honor to have you all here to to talk about this book um which was something that you know mark and i came up with a, a while ago that or at least we thought that there was this kind of hole in the in the not the literature so much but there was there was nothing that synthesized the literature in this you know this for this big question, one of the biggest questions in economics, uh, you know, it's, it's really one of the questions that made me want to become an economist is trying to understand why certain parts of the world became rich and others uh, have lagged behind and continue to lag behind, why others have caught up, et cetera. This is a literature that has grown immensely in the last couple of decades and really hasn't been synthesized um, in, in any way that's kind of digestible for sure. it's also i think it's a type of literature that a lot of people are interested in you know beyond academia but also undergrads it's the type of question that i think if we if we can get across to especially undergraduates people that might be looking to see what they're going to do with their lives um, might be interested in economics in general if we can get across them that these are questions that economists answer and they answer with history and then they can apply these insights into to really doing just about anything, whether it be development or, you know, thinking through the processes of economic growth, things like this, then this can be a powerful tool. And this is when Mark and I kind of realized when we were talking about this, that there's nothing out there that does this. So this is why we wrote this book. And really, you know, we wrote it, we also tried to write it in such a way that it would be accessible. Um, And I hope hope we succeeded in this, you know, accessible to people well beyond uh, the academy, people that... That do not have the background to really, you know, know, no, you know, one one article from another. Or frankly, even read a lot of the articles that that we summarize. Um, so, what is this book about? Um, uh, last month, I was at Stanford, and Lisa asked me that exact question. Asked me to summarize it, in just a few sentences. Um, with most academic books, you should be able to do that. With my previous book, with Mark's book, you know, with the books written by the people in this room, you really should be able to do that. Most people can, and because most books have a strong thesis that they're trying to promote, this book does not. Um, you know, the first half of this book is meant to summarize the literature. It's meant to organize it, and for the most part, be dispassionate. Now, we're not completely dispassionate, and I'll talk about that in a second on on one or two factors in the literature. And then the second half is meant to then apply this, these insights from the literature into why certain parts of the world become rich. We start with Britain, which you have to, I think, in a book like this, um, because they're obviously the first place where the modern economy emerged. We then discuss other places that you know soon followed suit, you know, North America and Western Europe, and you know then East Asia. Parts of East Asia became rich, you know, beginning with Japan, and then in the twentieth century of East Asian tigers, and then you know eventually. You know, Really, if you want to talk about how the world became rich, you know, uh, China and India are the, the 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 two places you have to really at least discuss to some extent. We um, uh, so China is obviously well on the path to becoming at least what we call rich, and maybe I should even uh, before going into the book just say what I what we mean by that. We don't mean rich in the way that you know, pe- you know having mansions and lots of consumer goods and things like this. We we essentially mean far sufficiently far enough away from poverty levels where where th- that's not something that one thinks about in their day to day, you know, the, the very basics of life. And This is something that, um, as many will know, but but uh, certainly here, but and hopefully many of our listeners know that you know this is something that that for the, the lot of most humans in world history, that was their life. You know, it's relatively close enough to poverty, where the basics were not always assured. And the 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 real the real achievement, I think, of the last certainly two hundred years, but you could even say half century, has been to remove large fractions of the world away from 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 that. And that's what we mean by rich. Of course, there's still at least a billion people that are very much in poverty, and that's something we're not we're not blind to this we understand that the whole world is not actually rich that said um more of the world is moving away from those levels of poverty than ever before and this is something where we that deserves to both be celebrated and also understood so what this book does is the first half again it, it it breaks this literature down this large and growing literature you know so if we you know Mark and I talked about you know hopefully if this book ends up doing pretty well. And yeah, you know, I think early signs are you know, somewhat positive in that direction. We'd love to be able to write a second edition at some point. And the second edition will look a little different than the first edition, both because I think we've we've learned and had our thoughts, uh, our thoughts have evolved, I think a bit since, since writing the book, but also that this, this is a literature that is continuously evolving as well. And some of the stuff that we've written in, in this book actually may change because of the literature changing, but also you know, certainly in the latter chapters, when we talk about more modern um, growth, you know, stuff is changing as well. So the first half looks at five, uh, what we call strands of the literature, you know, five different chapters that, that look at various aspects of the literature and try to understand both their impact on how the world became rich and also how they interact with each other. And so my thought, my thinking has evolved a bit on this. We've done a lot of th- these types of events since the book has come out, and just through talking through it, and you know, talking through it with Mark and with interviewers, and it's like this. I think I've I've come to some a few realizations as well. Um, so maybe I could, I'll, I'll quickly go through those. So the first one's geography. Um, these are kind of one of the, you know one of the oldest set of explanations that you know geographical endowments, whether it be coastline, climate. Rainfall, things like this, um, that they can contribute to uh, to, to uh, certain parts of the world being wealthy or not. Cold being a big one in terms of the industrial industrialization. I, I we kind of take the liter- the broad literature as saying you know, ge- geographical endowments certainly do not determine the fate of nations in terms of their economic outcomes, but they can ob- obviously set the, some of the relevant constraints and. Really, what this what they do is they it sets how the other types of things we know are important vary across societies, especially things like institutions. You know, societies that you know, an island like Britain is just going to have a different set of institutions than, say, a country in the steppe like Mongolia or something like this. then, and some of this is just purely geography based. All right. The next one, and I'm going out of order by chapter, but I think uh, I have a reason for doing this, is colonization. And this is one where we tried to be dispassionate, I think, in the first six chapters in terms of you know trying our best to say, well, this is what the authors of these books or articles would have wanted to, to say. But we do think that the arguments in favor of colonization as being important for Britain's industrialization overall are pretty weak in this literature. On the other hand, the arguments in favor of colonization playing a significant role in the colonized failing to catch up in some places or being much slower to catch up, and Nathan has done some very good work on this, I think are much stronger. So when we think about the big question on why the world or how the world became rich, when we're thinking about beyond just Britain, and beyond just, you know, parts of Western Europe, especially those nations that were the colonizers, not the colonizees or the colonized um, colonization, I think there's fairly convincing evidence that it has played a key role. And again, oftentimes this is, is through these other things that we talk about. So institutions, you know, now there's now a large literature connecting the uh, colonial passive institutions, and think culture as well. And again, this is also something that has worked on certainly in the context of uh, sub-Saharan Africa that, you know, that. Cultural traits and ones that we think of as being pretty important for economic development vary across the formerly colonized world, and some of these can be traced back directly to certain aspects of uh, the colonial past. These areas. Uh, the third one is culture, and um, we want to be very careful here in the sense of we don't mean culture in the way that people in the that social scientists of the early twentieth century meant it, where essentially trying to, have some highly Eurocentric explanation for why Europe's great and the rest of the world is poor. Um, You know, we we mean culture by, you know, the way that people view the world, the way the the heuristics they use to simplify the world. And this clearly differs across societies. We know that, say, levels of trust differ across societies, which we also think of as being important for um, um, economic development. Um, I'd say like geography, culture does not determine the fate of nations. This is not something I think that, that at least I would accept seriously as being you know, a purely cultural explanation for why uh, the world, certain parts of the world become rich and others have not. Um, it, it's not the only thing, um, but it does provide constraints, much like geography. We, we, we can think of um, it as providing the, the context under which certain types of institutions work. And I think even more so, even more so than geography, and certainly well, geography doesn't even qualify here. But culture is, is, in many ways, intimately intertwined with institutions. You know, to the point where somebody like Avner Greif would even not necessarily distinguish between uh, certain aspects of culture and institutions; they're one and the same. Um, so, in this context, I, I think we can say, you know, culture really co- imposes stronger constraints on how institutions work and why they work differently in different societies. And, you know, so many of the rules that that make institutions work in the way they do are informal and where these informal in, in, informal institutions or informal rules come from is the society's cultural past. And what the, all that this means is not if if we don't consider this, we're not going to under really understand how institutions work and why they work differently in different societies. All right, then the fourth one is institutions. Um, you know, maybe not surprisingly, if if you do know any of my work, I, I do view this as being among the most important of the uh, the five the five pillars that we lay out here, in terms of you know as, as helping us understand why different societies have had have had different outcomes over time, and particularly why even it, it's sometimes the dog that didn't bark, I think. And what I mean by this is when we think of well, England, you know, or Britain in the early eighteenth nineteenth centuries had yeah it had relatively limited institutions even though you know parliament was you know partially corrupt you know it certainly wasn't like every person could vote things like this um, there was constraint on executive power now did that mean that england was going to become inventive no i mean we have plenty of other of of other examples of places that had limited institute relatively limited governance but did not industrialize the 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 dutch republic i think you know, being at the contemporary, a contemporary, a contemporaneous case that suggests that, that said, having those institutions meant that you didn't have things like you had in, say, Imperial China at the time, or you know, a place that I've said, the Ottoman Empire at the time, where those types of uh, political institutions were quite constrained. So again, it's not that it's not the things like political institutions that Constrain executive power are a sufficient case for parts of the world becoming rich, and in fact, they're not even necessary. You know, I think that we now see places like China certainly becoming rich by the way we have de- determined it or described it rather in the last forty years with very un- un- unlimited executive power. Um, that said, there there is a pretty strong correlation here, and I think that that when we're when we're trying to say well well, what makes a society rich or what gets it at least away from the the worst of poverty? These types of institutions have been shown to be quite important in many different contexts. Uh, the fifth one, final one is demography. And I think this is the one where my, maybe my, my opinions change the most in that, on the one hand, demography is kind of clearly important in terms of, you um, you know, what we, what we, you know, the literature calls the demographic, having a demographic transition to, you know, fewer kids, typically where, you know, as economists use these kind of terrible words when talking about people uh, focusing on quality instead of quantity, you know, having, you know, having fewer, but maybe more uh, better educated children. This is something that even in the context of England in the 19th century, you know, kind of clearly led to greater income per capita, having some type of transition like this. I think where you know what we often see here, though, is that with a couple of exceptions, you know, France being one, these transitions typically happen after a lot of the things that we we care about in terms of um, you know, say, institutional change, uh, maybe even cultural change, you know, the type of stuff Joel's worked on and the you know the culture of growth that um, are quite important for the kind of the as the prime movers. So where does this leave us? We have you know we have these different strands. Um, we, on the one hand we say, all right, well, context matters. And I think, you know, going back to Lisa's question, I think that, and I I know that a couple of readers have been frustrated with the book because it's, you kind of throw up your hands and say, well, if context matters, what are you really telling us about how the world became rich? On the other hand, I'd say what the book I'd like to think does is say that that doesn't necessarily mean that just anything goes. What it, what it means is we have five things we can look at. And and then we can say, well, all right, well, what are the contexts in which they work? We know which in in which we know it has worked in the past. And we can say, all right, well, Britain had a certain set of factors. Britain had a set of factors that, as I just noted, it had relatively limited executive power. It had a number of other things. You know, a lot of what, you know, Joel's talked about, particularly in, you know, say in the enlightened economy, had a set of skilled workers, had large internal markets. Um, it had a, it had a culture that was more of a pan-European culture of, you know, shared scientific, uh, endeavors that also, that also were, were, you know, were growth was a thing that, that could happen and, and was something that, and this is kind of, I think, you know, we, we discussed this in the book, one of the, um, the more, I think it's one of the more convincing culture, uh, the, the most convincing cultural arguments specifically in why Britain became rich, but then we say, all right, well why Britain became rich is really one of the big questions in economic history. I think this literature has something to say to it, you know, not just specifically the literature on the industrial revolution that, you know, just discussing, but, you know, more broadly going back, you know, prior to the the mid 18th and 19th century. But then we, we can also say, well, the catch up growth that happens after this is just going to be a little different. You don't need to reinvent the wheel, but that said, that said these five factors are going to be important into understanding why certain parts of the world were able to, even if you don't, even if it, if it's easier, because you don't need to reinvent the wheel, why hasn't everyone been able to, why isn't the entire entirety of the world, why didn't it become rich? And why has it taken some places over a century longer than others? And that's where, um, that's where I think the, the book, yeah, again, maybe frustrating to, to some in that we don't have there. There isn't an answer, and I think in, in many respects that that is the answer of the book. There is no answer. On the other hand, we can look at these fa- these factors and and take these factors and understand for each case why why certain parts did end up becoming successful, why some parts eventually caught up. And, and frankly, then I think, you know, I, we don't spend as much time on this in part because, you know, I think we're not, we're not development economists. We are economic historians. That's, that's our specialty. We try to, we, we do try to bring in the 20th and 21st century in the final chapter, but I think much more can be done on this is to say, well, what are the lessons that can be used to understand why certain parts of the world remain impoverished? And, and what, what should we expect to see in the the next, you know, generation or two? I mean, I'm I'm actually quite optimistic that you know there's that many parts of the world are going to become wealthier. Uh, and, and again, wealth as we de- describe it here, not not you know not seventy thousand dollars a year per capita GDP wealthy, but ten thousand dollars a year per cap per, per capita GDP, which is really what, in a sense, what we care about. It's that you know five getting up to five to ten thousand dollars a year of per capita GDP makes such a big difference relative to. You know three to four dollars a day you know around a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars relative that 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 difference is much more important than say that the jump from fifteen thousand to thirty thousand or from thirty thousand to sixty thousand um that's what the book tries to describe and uh the, the the it's really again the literature that that we try to bring together here to try to give some insight into what what has been said and where we can go with this.
5: Thanks very much for inviting me to talk about this book. Um, It's a very easy book to praise. So I'm gonna limit myself to just a couple of points before going on to some questions that I had about the research program and just some things that came to mind while reading How the World Became Rich. So I wanna start by saying that a major strength of the book is in its organization. While a lot of us write, Um, thinking about ourselves, what we want to say, how we want to say it. You guys have really thought about the end user, and I think that you've really tried to put forward a book that is easy for readers to comprehend a really vast and complicated literature, and also for instructors to think about how they want to try to engage with this material. And so um, I really like the kind of very well-built internal scaffolding of the book, where you have a kind of descriptive opening that tells us what is the puzzle, is the world actually rich, a kind of end that talks about what does the modern economy look like. And then sandwiched in between are these two really wonderfully synthetic chapters and sets of chapters that talk about the different thematic explanations for economic development and a basic path to a kind of modern global economy as well as this kind of nested design where you've got this story about Europe. Why is Europe different? Why is Northwestern Europe different? And then why is England different? And I think that both um, instructors and readers will really appreciate this and the ability to assign different portions of the project to readers based on what the syllabus of the course might look like. So for me, the two most exciting um, portions are really the ones that, again, sort of seek to give an idea about what those explanations are. And then create that kind of nested model of what was going on with kind of England at the core. And um, I think that, you know, you say that there's not really an argument. And here, I think you guys are excessively modest. And what I would say is that for me, um, reading the argument or the argument really is the curation of this literature into these five categories. Right. That that is the argument. And the argument is related to what is omitted. Right? So essentially, the way I see it, geography is the first order factor from which these other explanatory factors flow. And then you ultimately see development as a contingent outcome where um, these four additional factors that are related to geography interact with each other to create this outcome that we call economic development. That said, my sense is that, um, you know, that that is the argument of the book, but because the book is I would consider a little overly focused on the literature and economic history. It provides only a partial picture. And so um, I think part of the reason for this is what is published or publishable within the field of economics. And so I'm going to make some suggestions um, in terms of my more critical engagement with the book um, in terms of the omissions and what you've left out. And I think that, um, you know, it's important to think about what's missing because the things that are missing actually do relate to these five main categories of explanation that you provide. So the first, I think, is related to the importance of the state and state capacity. So why is more of a focus on the state absolutely essential? I think in part because the state interacts with and is intimately connected to geography, institutions, culture, demography, and colonialism. Um, The history of state development is, is, of course, the history of economic development is of course, related to the history of the state and societies around the world. You need a state to establish social order. Without social order, you can't really even begin to think about this question about how do you create constraints on an executive? So a first order condition is to sort of think about the conditions under which you create social order. And of course, these ideas are really old. We can think about um, you know, Huntington's work on this, North Wallace and Gas talk a lot about the importance and the creation of social orders. Um, It's a major focus in the narrow corridor. Mark Dincheco has written a lot about this in terms of the ordering of what has to come. First, you have to have a state. Then the interaction of the state with executive constraint is important for the development of the economy. My personal small quibble with Dincheco is you need an intellectual or informal institutional foundation for executive constraint before states become too strong. Um, Otherwise, I think that it's really difficult to ultimately get um, that possibility for executive constraint. So um, you also don't engage a lot with the question of the relationship between elites and rulers within states. To the extent you do, it's mostly in the context of the literature on the emergence of parliaments. But I think this is actually a much bigger question and one that needs to be unpacked to a greater extent. Um, You talk about the importance of technology and human capital, but where do skilled workers come from? Typically, they are products of state efforts to create literate societies. Where does mutual intelligibility come from? Typically, state efforts to create a common language over its territory through schools, conscription, and often violence allows for that mutual intelligibility. Jim Scott teaches us that states seek to order societies and render them legible with huge implications for development. So without the state, it's really hard to think about, for me to think about um, economic development. The second factor that I think um, deserves more emphasis um, is related to what I would call cross-cultural global encounters. So for me, this is not just about trade, but it's everything from the migration of people and diaspora communities, workers, um, and the movement of ideas and cultural tropes and technology across space. And so um, I would encourage you to think more about these interconnections between world regions and the implications of those interconnections for growth. We know that these types of encounters were important drivers of the pre-modern global economy, thus setting the stage for later forms of economic takeoff. How should we think about proto-globalization and um, why only talk about these cross-cultural global encounters or primarily talk about them in terms of colonization? So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Um, one, I would think more about the economic integration of Europe into the Mediterranean economy in the 12th century, and how important that was to, um, as a driver of the commercial revolution. So um, you know, some of what I've written suggests that European engagements with Muslim societies in the form of Holy Land Crusades were actually really important for Europeans to establish trade, economic, and even transportation connections to the Mediterranean world at a time when it wasn't clear how European state development or city development was going to really go. So to what extent has European engagement with Muslim societies actually served as a deep and foundational driver? of economic and political development. Um, and you know this is just sort of one example from within the West. There's also minimal engagement with the importance of cross-regional trade within Asia. In other words, should we think more about what was going on not in the context of Europe engaging with other parts of the world, but other parts of the world engaging with each other? So we know that Eurasian trade was absolutely essential for economic development within Asia for a millennium. But again, the book is very European focused. And so are there ways to think about exchange between the Middle East and China, South Asia and Southeast Asia? And how do these economic relationships influence growth, technology exchange, creation of diaspora communities that were important for growth? So, again, I wouldn't want you to think about my discussion about the importance of the state or these cross- cultural encounters as a um, critique of the book. These aren't flaws, but rather to me, they're just omissions. And I would think that these are things that maybe would lead you to write an additional two books um, in the future that would tackle this question about what is the role of state and economic development and how should we think about cross-cultural global encounters beyond trade. Um, And, uh, you know, I just want to Thank you guys for giving me the chance to talk about this book. It's it's a very important project and I was really glad to have a chance to engage with it.
1: Okay, great, thanks. Uh, um, Thanks for the invitation um, to um, talk today, which is a great honor to to be here with uh, fellow panelists and uh, in the company of uh, Jared and Mark. so I'll just echo Lisa and say that the the book is fantastic. Uh, I'll, for, I think for sure, adopt it uh, in my uh, PhD course. And it provides the nice, in the words of Lisa, scaffolding that really helps to synthesize the, the literature. I think this doesn't exist. Uh, the literature is really only from, you know, the vast majority of it or a lot of it, particularly the empirical literature, is from the last 20 years. So it may, really makes sense that we haven't had a, had a um, a uh, book like this that really synthesizes and really digs deeply into the into the content. So, um, so I've I've seen this the book at different stages. I think I saw the, saw an outline uh, and then saw uh, what was I I thought close to a final manuscript, but not near as rich and as detailed as this. And is at each point, it's kind of like I'm trying to think of a good analogy. A work of art where you, at first you see the out the sketch, and you're like, oh, that's cool good idea I think you'd know, be great to do that uh, and then you see it developed more and you're like wow there's a lot of texture and and detail and then you have the final final uh, work of art which is just extremely um, rich and complex and insightful and I think that that really surprised me uh, to some extent not <laughs> uh, just exactly how how um, the extent to which it was was um, really insightful in those dimensions. Uh, and so, so I just encourage anyone to who has an interest in this area to definitely read it, even if you think you know the literature. And so for me, that's why I thought, oh, okay, I know I know all of this. Uh, definitely the, the richness in the economic history of Britain, of Europe, I didn't know that. But even the, the more macro empirical literature that I did know, there is a huge number of insights. Um, so So let me talk about, I have just a few bigger picture comments and um, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't call them criticisms, but just uh, food for thought. Um, The 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 thing that's closest to a criticism, and I think I gave you this feedback already, is actually the title. So um, how the world became rich, and Jared's talked a lot about that, you know, maybe more accurate. Um, how a subset of the world became rich, another subset stagnated, and another subset grew, but grew only slowly. Right? So you—you you tell. I've never read a book that anyone reads because I would be terrible at creating titles. Uh, but that—that that would be more accurate uh, to some extent. But maybe more—more <laughs> more catchy would be how the world became unequal. Right? And I think you would under—you know—you would um, acknowledge this. We know. Uh, in the, I think it's the first figure where you see the divergence of incomes per capita of regions or societies around the world. We see there's been divergence big time, which is the title of this great JEP piece by Lant Pritchett. Uh, and we know that's just another way of saying it, right? And so what you're thinking of is, well, the world's become rich on average. That's for sure true because some, some areas have stagnated, some areas have taken off. And then the question is, well, why have those areas that have stagnated, you just said this in your, in your comments, why haven't they taken off? And that's kind of the the, the frame of everything, right? And there's some quotes um, here on page 220, the advent of modern economic growth created tremendous opportunities for catch-up growth, but these were difficult to grasp, right? Um, Talking about the Atlantic trade, there's um, that it benefited Europe, but it didn't benefit everyone equally, right? Um, And then chapter 11, the very final chapter is the world is rich, and and the second sentence the world is becoming richer which means that more of humanity be, can be lifted from dire poverty right so it's very optimistic which knowing Jared and Mark who are positive <laughs> nice guys that's not surprising but so i just want to raise the question and this is related a little bit to one of lisa's comments is part of economic success zero sum right so is the are are is the wealth of the rich somehow related to the suffering of the poor? That's maybe putting it too strongly, but I think it's interesting to think about. Um, if you think about that, you say, well, that's not quite consistent with the data, because what we'd expect is certain groups take off and other groups then do worse. Instead, we see nobody seems to be doing worse over time, but some groups are taking off. Right. And so that's saying, well, there are you know, certain groups are doing things which are good. Others aren't adopting that. Um if we stop to think at a more concrete level and you do this in the book, in the chapter on colonialism, for sure is just, you know, in in logical terms, some activities are zero sum, right? Colonialism, right? You're um, extracting resources uh, and then you're kind of, in some sense, bargaining over the surplus. That's, is at least a zero sum aspect to that. Uh, The slave trade, that's zero sum. People who are being enslaved are definitely losing. Others are gaining. Some middlemen are, are gaining and losing. Uh, depending on how you look at it, plantation slavery. So on logical terms, there is some zero sumness in the world. There is some positive sumness. Um, So then returning, you know, how much of it is zero sum? So it's zero to say zero is probably not quite right. Nothing. Uh, But realistically, is it something that we can ignore? Coming back to what we should expect is some societies just doing worse, not stagnating. Right. And so, in a world where you have subsistence income, right, you really can't have stagnation. You can have, because what's going to happen is once income per capita gets too low, uh, populations will die and then you'll go back to subsistence income. So it's really not possible in the data that we were looking at with per capita income for groups to decline, right? But you could say, well, what would be a group declining? Well, it would be huge population losses. So then we can say, well, let's think about the history of the world, the Columbian Exchange, do, do we observe huge population losses? And the answer is definitely the case, right? Indigenous populations, we really don't know, but the best guess is 80 to 95% of indigenous populations were eliminated within the first 100, 150 years after 1492. So some of that is conflict. Uh, a big part of that is disease, but also lots of its policy or, or, or and strategic policies. So a great example of that is a recent paper by Don Fair, Rob Gillizzo and Maggie Jones, where they look at the the decimation of the bison in North America. Part of this was an intentional policy by the government to, to decimate the bison, to kill the bison, because there are these actually quite affluent nations which live off the bison, right? And so if you can depopulate them, then you can have Europeans move to the frontier, right? And so that's actually just an example of uh, growth but it's, there's at least a zero sum component and there are groups which are, which are being hurt, right? Um, so, um, but it's a question of, is this more general? And this relates to uh, Lisa's comment about cross-cultural global encounters and the interconnections between regions and the interconnections between the success and less success or even declines of different regions. Um, definitely a relevant paper here is Asimoglu, Johnson & Robinson, The Rise of Europe. Uh, in the American Economic Review 2005. And so you you mentioned that, well, there's not a lot of evidence, which I would agree with, about um, sugar, cotton specifically, being super, super important for the Industrial Revolution. There's also not a lot of evidence in terms of um, regressions, analysis, showing that it's not, right? And so the, I think the best evidence we have is this macro type of studies. Asimoglu-Johnson-Robinson's uh, 2005 paper, Um, It's not perfect. I think even better is Luigi Pascali, uh, AER 2017, where he has this very nice instrument for trade. It's looking at 1870 to 1913, but that is during the colonial period for Africa, for example, Um, and 37 countries only. So we would think if you divide the world, we think there's about 200. No countries uh, from Black Africa, so it over represents the rich countries. But what does he find, actually, when you estimate the causal effect using this fancy instrument I won't get into, um, uh, causal effect of trade on growth? Well, it's actually negative for about 90 percent of the sample. Right. So again, this is evidence of a decline in zero sumness. Just to be really specific, you have to have a polity score in 1860 above six for you to have a positive effect. The highest polity score in the sample is seven. Right. The highest possible is ten. Um, so that's some evidence, at least, that per- perks my questioning about this, is how much of the uh, success of the successful is due to the failure of the of the poorer societies. Um, if we think of the United States, and you have a nice discussion of this, slavery, that's clearly zero-sum. As I mentioned just now, frontier expansion is clearly zero-sum. And these are probably the two things that really are quintessential and key to the success of the United States, right? Um, um so yeah, so I think that's just food for thought. And in volume two, it might be something to think about. Uh, you know, how much of 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 you know, this the, the success of of the rich is is due to the poverty of the poor. Um, I think related to this, and this is um, just think about the conceptual framework. Um, Typically in economics, and particularly in in the growth literature, long-run development literature, there's a desire to identify the one causal factor that led to economic growth. So when I was a grad student, it was institutions versus other things, and there was a big debate, which made it very fun and exciting. and the book doesn't fall into this trap, right? And you said even, I think, there is no answer <laughs> It's the conclusion. That's probably why it's just it's uh, not particularly intellectually satisfying for some people because they want the one silver bullet. I think even you have a sentence in there that says there is no silver bullet. Um, but, but it does fall into that trap a little bit, which is understandable because we, we do when we talk about Britain's Industrial Revolution. How is Britain different? It wasn't different on this dimension, so it couldn't have, have been uh, that factor, for example. Um, and I think this is not about the book, because the book's taking a clear step forward, but our profession, right? It's natural for us to view economic growth from the perspective, and this is because of the history of our profession, the physical sciences, so like physics. So a question like, there's a ball, we see the ball move, why did that ball move? It could have been you dropped it in its gravity, it could have been hit by something, but there's a single answer, right? Uh, but if we view economic growth from the perspective of life sciences, evolutionary biology, and think of, of growth as a dynamic, organic, evolutionary system, then it really doesn't make sense to say, well, what caused, uh, you know, uh, lizards to be lizards, right? Or, or what is the one thing that's super important for us to breathe, right? Or even like, what is the most important organ of the body, right? We could debate, I think it's the heart, I think it's the lungs, I think it's the skin. Uh it just conceptually doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And so, and I think if we, through introspection, think of us ourselves as economists, we fall into that trap. And so the book is a step forward out of, out of thinking that way, which I think is fantastic. Um, And then just two, two last things Um, is part of economic success, luck, right? Randomness, just the residual, any of these regressions in the papers that you analyze where there's one factor, like let me pick on myself, the slave trade, it explains maybe 3% of the total variation, right? So what's the 97% is a lot of it luck. And there's this great paper, uh, which Mark Koyama is a co-author on the fractured land hypothesis, where the nice thing about that paper is typically we have a model and then the model has an equilibrium and we say these, these are the comparative statics or this was important for that equilibrium. No, they realize um, that history is probabilistic. There's contingencies, there's randomness. And so what they do is they engage in simulations, right? And just to quote them, we focus on pattern predictions rather than replicating specific outcomes. And so they actually report distributions over outcomes because they recognize that history is contingent, right? So um, it's a little harder when you're thinking about these things descriptively, But it just raises the question of how much of, you know, why was the Industrial Revolution in Britain specifically? Was it just luck? It could have been in, you know, the Netherlands or other places. And I'm sure Joel will have an opinion about that. And is that the answer? And I'm sure that's not satisfying to a lot of people as well, if that ends up being the answer. Um, And then just the last thing, and we can debate about this on the round table or over beers the next time we see each other. Um, The role of industrial policy. I guess I would have a different view. This comes in when you talk about the United States. Um, I think it was super important for the U.S. Where did the U.S. get tax tax revenues before the implementation of income tax? That's a big issue. You get it from tariffs. Uh, It's tough for developing countries today. Um, How important was it for for the Asian tigers? Um, There's recent studies, Nathan Lane, Maddie Mitranen, Rekha Juhas, showing that, uh, at least in specific cases, industrial policy can have benefits, whether it's through factor accumulation, that's Maddie Mitrenin, uh, through innovation, Reka Yuhas's paper, or just promoting um, key industries that have linkages, that's Nathan Lane's paper in South Korea. Um, so that's a minor thing. I think that's like, you just touch on that at the end, but just wanted to mention that so we can flag it for the next time we're uh, having beers and want to debate. Um, and then the last thing is, um, where I'd encourage you to go is the question of what does this all imply for developing countries today? And you actually said, well, we're not development economists, uh, but I think there's huge gains um, for intellectual arbitrage, for individuals who are interested in growth and development issues uh, like you are, to look at the past, right? either there's lessons, there's, there's evidence, and just to think about what does the past tell us about the future and tell us about policy? Um, And there's a few gems in the book, which I think one one sentence is growth episodes like the Industrial Revolution were not planned by policymakers. So if you think of what development is trying to do, it's policymakers, NGOs, somebody trying to plan growth or trying to spur growth. And I think it is natural to think about or important to think about, well, what were the conditions for growth for the rich countries today? And is development policy trying to replicate that, or are we trying to um, create a completely different path? And um, is that what we should be doing, right? And so, um, so I think if there's anyone in the profession that has the potential to contribute to understanding deeply about economic development strategies about development, but from an informed historical perspective, it's probably uh, you know yourself, Jared and Mark. And so, I would. Um, encourage you to be ambitious and don't <laughs> stop when you're, you know, just on the verge of, of something really, really great. And uh, I think influencing a, a whole other field within economics, right. Which I think this has the potential to do. So, um, yeah. So I look forward to look forward to that book <laughs> and thank you very much. All right. I think
6: it's my turn, right? So uh, I'm going to take a slightly different tack. I've, I've, Written a review of this book, which some of you may have seen, and uh, so I've had my say about it, and um, I'm not going to comment on it anymore, uh, except perhaps for one uh, sort of amusing editorial note, which is I just put down um, Brad DeLong's rather hefty economic history of the 20th century, and um, it's also a very ambitious book, although it has, you know, of course, focuses on, on on the more recent. Uh, period Uh, but there's a big difference between brad's book and and this book and not just that brad's book is three times as long um, but in brad's approach you know his his style is basically to keep citing people left right and center and claim that everybody's wrong you know and so the sentence he was wrong or she was wrong appears at least 25 or 30 times in in the book and uh, uh you know jared and mark are exactly the opposite i mean I don't think they say, but anybody, they're wrong. I mean, I think that sometimes they think it, but they're you know they're too polite and too tactful to say so. And, um, and I think it's a difference in style, maybe a difference in on, in the stage of the life cycle that they're at. But I don't think it's a difference a sort of difference in 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 personal style. Uh, I just thought it was sort of an, an amusing contrast. What I want to do now is is take take a sort of an and a slightly different view of 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 the main issue as i see it um coming out of this book even though it's not really discussed explicitly in it but what this book is is about is what you know deirdre calls the great enrichment right um it's true of course there's an inequality an and all that but basically you know the human race in 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 2022 for better or for worse is far richer than it was uh you know 100 or 200 or 500 years ago and you know what i want to ask is you know is this really more than just kind of a fluky once in a history event in other words i have been have we been writing a black swan uh you know history goes back it's thousands of years and it's really only in the last 150 200 if you know, 250 depending on material you read but it's the last sort of few seconds of a long a long period in which we got rich and 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 of course the question is you know is this is this an an unusual thing or is this a once uh you know uh in in history event and if it had not happened for some reason if something had gone wrong as as as, it maybe wouldn't have happened at all i mean after all you know north weingast and wallace in their book talk about the natural state and darren and and jim talk about uh the extractive society; these are very stable equilibria that had to be upset at some point, and we think that these were upset by the Industrial Revolution. But you know, it 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 didn't have to happen. There's nothing ineluctable about it. And so, if it hadn't happened, you know, if if the Spanish Inquisition had succeeded taking over Britain, you know, as a result of the Armada in 1588, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened, and we would all be and we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd still be you know living in our hovels and and struggling uh, against, against poverty. So, th- that's one thing to think about. And, you know, the analogy would be, and maybe this is a bit of a stretch, okay, but you look at, at mammalian life on this planet, okay? So, you know, 65 million years ago, we believe the dinosaurs disappeared and this gave the mammals a, a an opportunity. And eventually, of course, they came to, uh, to uh, if not to dominate, certainly become one of the dominant sort of t- types of life in the planet and you know life went on for 60 odd million years without intelligent life as as, as we would recognize it uh, emerging or so we believe now i understand now that you know a lot of animals uh are, are supposed to be more intelligent than we ever believed but when somebody will you know will tell me that when my dog will write schubert's c major symphony you know i'll start believing this seriously um and so why didn't the Great Enrichment happen before the Industrial Revolution? And so, you know, I I have sort of four types of factors that I would like to put on and then sort of basically argue why they were so slowly uh, but certainly uh, relaxed, okay? The first story that people tell and, you know, I go back and forth on this sort of fundamental Malthusianism, but basically Malthusian factor being a sort of a classic negative feedback mechanism in which, you know, every time income goes up, it sort of it unleashes forces that, that, uh, uh, that will undo it. And so we are stuck in this sort of... Uh, uh, iron law world that you know, people like Greg Clark and Odette galore strongly believe in, and others have sort of mixed feelings about. But clearly, it was something uh, that you can identify. But the other form of negative feedback, you know, is is much more in the tradition of Norse uh, Wallace and Wine gas which I call sort of pre- predators and invasion and local rent seekers, which is that every time there's an area which actually does reasonably well, um, there's some predator that either internal or external that essentially kills the geese that that lay the golden eggs okay this happens over and over and over again and one of the reasons i think that that this didn't in in the end didn't work in, in the 18th century was it was just hard to invade britain so if it starts on an island you know it's harder for for predators to get come in but not for lack of trying as we all, as we all know um and then you know there's there are, of course, exogenous shocks, uh, epidemics, uh, climate change. We know that in the past, successful societies have disappeared, like the, uh, you know, Mycenaean society in Greece or the classic Maya civilizations that basically lacked the kind of resilience they needed to uh, withstand exogenous shocks like climate change or or, or epidemics or or. Something like that. And finally, and of course you'd know I would get to this, is essentially that, and this is sort of an argument I've made over and over again, is that these societies didn't know enough to overcome what I call the sort of the the curse of concavity. And the curse of concavity, what I mean by that, which is sort of a a fancy term, I guess, is, is that every one of the factors that would make economies grow before the Industrial Revolution, was subject to very strong diminishing returns. So the gains from trade or capital accumulation, things like that, they, they they could raise income, but after a while, you know, the the you know the the advantages are exhausted, and you sort of reach some kind of a level, some kind of upper bound. Now that's not the case, of course, when knowledge is based on uh is is the base of of economic growth, because there doesn't seem to be any obvious um. Source of concavity, you know, my learned colleague Bob Gordon, uh, notwithstanding. And so, what I really think is happening is that all of those four factors, each in their own way, uh, was mitigated at some point in early modern Europe, and came coming to some kind of, um, you know, climax in the eighteenth century, and um, and so. Let me just go over them very briefly and, and then leave it at that, okay? The first is that uh, in the 18th century, Enlightenment thought slowly but certainly uh, made predatory wars unfashionable. Now, I've got to be very careful about this because these are only intra-European predatory wars. Of course, the Europeans sort of channeled, as, as, as Nathan was saying. Some of their some of their predatory instincts toward other parts of the world, but all the same, there are wars in in Europe, including of course some very big ones, like the French and Napoleonic wars. but these were not primarily predatory wars, and so the same is true say for other wars that we see happening uh in the in the nineteenth century so the idea that you know you have a richer country next door and you're going to invade it to you know to take their riches that's something that falls out of falls out of fashion because I think of 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 the way people started thinking about what wars uh, were supposed to do the other thing that i think matters is uh, as far as the enlightenment is concerned is the enlightenment was one of the factors that reduced malthusian uh malthusian pressure in part at least because it it reduced the uh, influence of religion on, on, on household decisions uh, first in France of course where the fertility decline came first but then eventually it happened it happened everywhere and so there are other things that I would associate with the enlightenment but the, the willingness to practice and the ability to practice contraception uh, of course is the main factor that, which is which reduced Malthusian uh, pressure on the rest of the, of the world uh, the central story that I would like to stress here is that, um, and the book book makes makes this point I think quite quite well, Uh, but it needs to be be hammered home even harder because it is really the the central story and everything else I think is sort of incidental. And that is the, the, the persuasion that the road to sustained economic success is through the accumulation and dissemination of what 18th century people called useful knowledge that is to say the idea that economic and material welfare can be enhanced if we know more and if we get a a connection between uh, uh, the understanding of nature and the application of that understanding to the kind of things that um, that we need so it's more than science and people who sort of you know, uh, make a big deal about, well, the scientific revolution was really minor and people didn't really know enough and blah, blah, blah. That's not the point. The point is really uh, the conviction that this is the way to go. That if you want to relieve human misery, you know, you have to know more about chemistry and more about biology and more about physics and more about astronomy and, you know, on and on and on and on, and on. And, um, and so when this thing gets started, you get very small effects because people really didn't know enough. But the pressure toward accumulating knowledge is um, huge because this people because people want to get life to be better, and that have and they have convinced themselves that this is. The way to go, and I totally agree that governments really play at best second fiddle here. More so, perhaps uh, uh, they play a bigger role on the continent than in 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 Britain. But by and large, this is a spontaneous thing uh, where the government doesn't get in the way, but it doesn't do very much to encourage them. That changes a little bit in the second half of the nineteenth century, and even more so in the twentieth century. Uh, but that's but 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 then the government government really basically joins something that's already. Uh, uh, that's already ongoing. So I would think it's it's more than science; it's the persuasion of how to get society uh, to be better. And I think that is, in some sense, the central story. So how how should we how should we then think about this, this sort of miracle of economic growth that starts happening at some point around seventeen fifty? So what I would like to propose is something like this. Uh, um, much of history is about negative feedback. Okay, so you something, and which is basically a nice way of saying that we are stuck in some kind of equilibrium. And so, um, you know, a Malthusian model is the classic example, but the other uh, institutional f- negative feedback uh, mechanism that I proposed earlier is very much like it. And what I would like to propose is that the great enrichment is a shift from a world in which there is primarily negative feedback to a world in which there's primarily positive feedback. Okay, so you can think of this as sort of a complicated dynamic system in which there are some forces for negative feedback and some forces for positive feedback, and they sort of counteract each other, but over time the positive feedback becomes stronger and stronger. And by 1850 this thing becomes self-sustaining. And um, so you know, I I think the cultural changes that I talked about with the Enlightenment clearly play a role in that. But you can make a longer list, you know, about things like, like uh, particularly, I think you know, politics getting part of the story, uh, uh, you know, interstate competition matters. A whole bunch of things that you can add to this. But what matters is is this is that this is the sort of the triumph of positive feedback over negative feedback, and for that. And through that mechanism, I think what we get is a, essentially a triumph over the, what I call the curse of concavity. And um, what is really striking, and I'll finish with that, and what and is really striking about this, and, you know, I really got that from while reading uh, DeLong's book, is how incredibly resilient the world has become to shocks that in earlier times would have been Absolutely, totally devastating that in the 20th century you know the 20th century as as brad points out but it was in many ways it was a terrible century all these horrible disasters happening and they're still happening and so on and so forth and yet the world recovered from this in an amazingly fast fashion and he said this growth of resilience which i which i never cease to be amazed about you know uh, we can talk about, <laughs> Jared mentioned this, the, the Roman Empire, and, uh, you know, when, when, when the Roman Empire collapses, the whole thing falls apart for centuries. I mean, this system has no resilience. Uh, world War I was much worse than the invasions that ended the, the Roman Empire, but, you know, the world basically got on its feet with you know a few years later the same was true in 1945 and uh, one well, hopefully the same is true in in in, in ukraine when they say the thing ends we have become incredibly res- resilient and the reason we have become resilient is because growth depends on knowledge and it's very hard to get rid of knowledge i mean it's something you'd like to but it's very hard once it's there you know unless you kill everybody who has the knowledge, and you, you know, burn every book that contains it. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It'll keep coming back. And in that sense, I think uh, the, the kind of history of the last two hundred years is hugely different than uh, what it what came before. And I think that that is maybe the center of the story. And I would say, if you are doing a second edition of this book, you may want to have a chapter on these issues of, you know, concavity and Resilience to shock, uh, just a sort of an abstract concept, uh, just as, as a box to put in uh, things. But otherwise, I think this is a a terrific bo- book. And uh, you know, as I was reading it, you know, I'll give you, you know, I uh, I kept thinking, gee, you know, I I, <laughs> I wish I'd written this book. Um, and so, more power to you, uh, Mark and and Jared. Well.
4: Ah, wow! Yeah, thanks. Um, I wouldn't know where to begin, except you know to certainly thank uh, Lisa, Nathan, Joel for uh, not just those amazing comments, but a ton of food for thought. Um, maybe I'll just say something. I was you know I was taking notes throughout um, on 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 each comment, or maybe take something from uh, each uh, panelist. Um, so, Lisa, I mean, I'd say that you know we certainly agree that the state is uh central to a lot of the processes we're talking about. I I certainly agree that that what what we focused on even when we discussed state capacity was was kind of the, the state in a sense already being there and trying to, so we don't have as much really in which is something very clearly important I think it hit on a couple of things Nathan was talking about too with you know where does this come from in the first place um know, this is, you know, this is something that Mark and I have worked on individually as well, you know, thinking about how, you know, states are legitimated or that that how, how essentially rulers rule. Um, And this kind of also, I think, gets to, you know, one of the very last comments, you know, Joel was making as well, is that when we're thinking about all of these other, maybe whether you call them Hayekian or whatever processes that are highly decentralized, for me, in a sense, yeah, you know, I, I used the term before, but I didn't really explain what I meant. Um, you know, the dog that didn't bark is really when the state's not when when the when the state just doesn't interfere. I yeah, for me, you know, essentially, yeah, the, my reading of the literature and of the history is that you know you, there there needs to be a minimum of state capacity for anything like what we're discussing or how we're con, you know, how we're talking right now or yeah, you know, more or less any level of Um, Economic development to occur, you obviously need some type of state to um, to secure basic rights, things like this. But very, I think you know that this obviously goes too far as well. Um, You know, this is uh, obviously, Lisa. This is (laughs) much of what you study as well is you know on states that encroach on rights, and really that's that again. So I think that that when when we think about the role of the state in these processes. It's and it, it can actually be kind of difficult to draw it out empirically. You know the type of the type of uh, studies like Nathan was talking about. I, I think it can be really difficult because oftentimes it's, it's just when the state's not involved in understanding something that's or even getting data on something that's not there is is, is typically much harder. And yeah, I mean, I so I, I'd agree that you know when when on a further point you made when when thinking about what was omitted. In some cases, I would say you know there are certainly intentional omissions in this book. In other cases, there's not. I mean, in other cases, there's things that as soon as as soon as they've been brought up afterwards, you know, after the book was already you know published or you know was sent to the was sent to Polity or our publisher, and then we realize oh we really should have talked about X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know again, hopefully you know this is something you know obviously more than just taking notes on, but really you know in in all seriousness, really thinking about. Um, Hoping to have another edition where we do talk about these things, and I think that the stuff Lisa you brought up is central. So, um, yeah, Nathan, and and maybe yeah, I can you know talk about uh, you know some of the stuff that Nathan, both Nathan and Lisa brought up as well as kind of you know, thinking about you know both these kind of co- cross cultural, um, uh, not not and not just not just purely cross cultural, I'd say, but you know, what, really what Nathan brought up is you know this kind of zero sum nature. Or I would even say, frankly, a lot of the stuff is negative. Some, you know, with when certainly when we're talking about, you know, slave trade and, and, uh, and yeah, the, the worst, the worst, uh, the atrocities that happen to indigenous populations. Um, these, are, these are things that I think that the book could be, and I think, you know, to some degree should be. Framed in such a way because th- uh, this is also the way I think a lot of people, especially outside of academia, really you know certainly think about you know the wealth, wealth being perhaps is a zero sum or possibly even a negative sum game, especially as it emerged in um, Europe and you know via colonial enterprises. And I think a, car- a careful accounting of that, and you know, a- and I think as um, Nathan, you were hinting at there, and I think you know Joel is certainly hinting at you know. A lot of what's happened, especially in the last hundred fifty years or so, I think is very clearly positive. Some in understanding how that you know you know why that's the case and how that could possibly be the case in a world that is st- was still quite poor is among the most I think important things we can do. And, and Nathan, I think it was to the point you brought up at the end um, that. When we really think about development today, and what development economists do in particular, I, I do think that that you know, and, and really we can thank you know, Shmolu, uh Johnson Robinson, I think, for bringing some of you know history into development, for sure. But but this is still something where you know I, I'd like to think that the lesson some of the lessons that we we put forth in this book, uh, can be used to to really understand too, you know that. You know, again, now maybe to bring it to bring into Joel's points, you know, some of these when, when we think about the role of policy. Oftentimes policy is more so getting out of the way, <laughs> you know, it's 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 protecting you know certain rights and then and then maybe encouraging on on some margins. But actually, for the most part, it, you know, it's, it's about getting out of the way now, you know, as Nathan, as you noted, you know, in the U.S. case, that wasn't really the case. Right. You know, an industrial policy really did matter. In U.S. economic history, on the other hand, I think one thing I would take from this book is I, I'm not totally sure how how good the U.S. case is to look at in terms of what can we do for the poorest parts of the world today. I think you know we, we actually have now we now have much better cases of places you know that are both under um, autocratic rule, so you know it's not just China, but you know even a place like you know say South Korea became became wealthy under under autocratic rule. You know, of of course, you know, as we note in the book, too, you know, when we when we're talking about East Asia, there were geographic factors that mattered as well. You know, so. um, All right. So on that. So I guess moving to some of the stuff uh, Joel said, and I think um, honestly, I think the last thing Joel said is not just the highest compliment we've gotten in this book, I would I would actually say might be the highest compliment I've ever gotten in my career (laughs) that. Joel Moyker wishes that he had written a book that we wrote. Um, that's um, I I don't know how much you meant that, Joel, but um, thank you. I don't know if you know how much something like that means. And I would assume Mark, uh, even though he can't really speak right now, is uh, would think the same. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I know how, you know, so, Joel, I think, you know, especially in the chapter on industrialization, I think it did come out how much, you know, we, you know, we, we certainly, you know, favor your hypothesis, Not you know, really, in you know, in all three of you know the, the books that really take it on head-on, The Gifts of Athena, Enlightened Economy, and um, Culture of Growth. Yeah, th- and this was kind of, this This was a, I, I, I agree now that, now, now that you kind of say it like this, it, it does make sense to kind of think about having a, a chapter. And maybe this is, you know, so obviously DeLong's book will be something that we also, if we write another book, we'll have to tackle as we as we move on, you know, into the, the, the what I guess he calls the long 20th century. Um, yeah. Re- resilience to shock, I think, is clearly something that, you know, we also mentioned it, you know, earlier on, because, you know, J- John Wallace has a separate paper uh, with uh, Broadberry that that uh, I think both Mark and I, you know, we actually, we, we cite early on in, in kind of agree with is being important is when we look at growth spurts throughout history it's it's more about not falling back than it is moving forward you know a lot of societies move forward on occasion but most of them I mean obviously a lot of this is through Malthusian processes you know eventually fall back and this is what I think you know Delong actually you know he does in, in a lot of words as you, as you noted um, he's, he's, a, he's a verbose man um, uh, you know, it's, it's the resiliency that that matters. And it's not something we tackle and in part because, I, you know, I think it's also something where it's certainly before Brad's book, it's it's not as something that was as big in the literature, you know, and we, we did try to focus on things that that were out there in part because I think, you know, in part because we wanted at least most of the book to be a survey um, and in part because I think we wanted to the the answer. For lack of a better word, because we don't give an answer, but the answer to draw from from the literature, both you know, to a much lesser extent than we've done, and you know, to a larger extent what you know, people on, on this call and you know, other kind of the other big papers have done. So, I mean, I think in as, in as short as I can, you know, that, that's that's getting at about one percent of what was said here. But you know, thank you all for these comments, and really, you uh, know, I I do really hope that we are allowed to write another version of this because this. I think the exciting thing about not just this book, but this literature is that the book will look a lot different if we say, you know, this book came out in 2022, if, if the second edition comes out in, say, 2032, it will look different for the two reasons I brought up earlier. One is that there's just going to be stuff that happens um, in the world. And, uh, you know, frankly, you know, even, you know, so the Ukrainian Russian situation you bring up is you know a measure of resilience. And it's, it is kind of amazing that even even now you're seeing, you know, re- economic resilience in, in the Ukraine and or in Ukraine. And, but uh, obviously we don't know what's going to happen by that period. More importantly, I think in terms of, of this book is that there's just so much work being done right now that, that, you know, is, is changing. I think the way we think about some things and some of it, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. So, you know, Joachim Voth has this, you know, this paper on the role of colonization or, you know. Colonial enterprise into specifically you know, British industrialization. How that paper is received, how what responses to it you know might might change how we you know we think a little bit about that important process that is an important part of this book. And that's just you know I, I just that's off the top of my head one example of something that I think you know along with all of these suggestions plus you know plus much more that we've thought about since that we've read since that we've been have been brought to our attention since hopefully will be part of that um, that journey.